Welcome back to the Adra Insider Podcast. Ah, after a month of changes, it's good to be back with you guys. This is part two of our eighth episode, Responding to Emergencies. Last time, Max walked you through some of the details around the Alberta fires, and we shared a bit about the ongoing work in Ukraine. Supporting the mental health and psychosocial well-being of families affected by the war. Since there are so many emergency situations currently taking place, we couldn't really cover everything in one sitting, hence the double episode. Today, we're going to especially highlight the situations in Sudan and Haiti, but you'll be hearing a bit about a few other situations. As Max said last episode, emergency management is a big part of ADRA's reputation, so it makes sense for there to be a lot to talk about. Most of all, we're here to give you an insider look at how ADRA supporters really make a difference all around the world. I'm your host, Teresa Ferreira, and yep, it's good to be back, and you're listening to the ADRA Insider Podcast. Before we get into our topics, I have a couple key announcements. First, some of you who listen to this podcast may be hearing myself along with others from the ADRA Canada team in person at an upcoming Canadian event. Some of those events events have included already the Western Ontario Camp Meeting and the larger International Centre Camp Meeting on June 3rd in Ontario. Following will be at the SDACC Ministerial Convention, July 2 to 5, where all the pastors will gather together at Birmingham University. We'll be at the Manitoba-Saskatchewan Camp Meeting, the Alberta Camp Meeting, Maritimes, Newfoundland, BC, Quebec, and we will be journeying across Canada to really connect with you. Our listeners, our donors, our supporters, our partners. And so we thank you for the contributions you give to ADRA that we can do the work that God has assigned to serve humanity so all may live as God intended. We have something exciting happening in the fall as well. We'll be doing a joint venture with It Is Written Canada to the Philippines. So we're excited for some of the things that are coming up on our agenda and and calendar. So look for us across Canada. Lastly, those of you who are wondering about the response to the Canadian wildfires, you will hear more about that soon on an upcoming episode where we highlight our national Canadian programs in more detail. If you would like to give, please go to adra.ca front slash Canada. Now it's time for Max to give us an overview of the situation in Sudan. Hey everyone, Max here. So one of our biggest concerns right now is, of course, Sudan. I've personally received messages from people over the last few weeks asking what's going on in Sudan and how is ADRA responding? How can people help? So in the early weeks of the crisis, the unfortunate answer I had to give people was that we didn't really know what was happening or what could be done. This has changed, of course, a bit, but I think it will help to explain why things have been playing out the way they have been in Sudan. So let's do a little recap. Here are the basics of the situation. 
The fighting has been taking place over the last eight weeks between two groups, the Sudanese Armed Forces, or SAF, and the Rapid Support Forces, RSF. Try to keep track of these acronyms because I'm going to be saying SAF and RSF a lot. So that's Sudanese Armed Forces, SAF, and Rapid Support Forces, RSF. The RSF are a group of about 100,000 fighters or so. They were formed in 2013 by the nation's leader at the time, Omar al-Bashir. They grew out of a militia group called Janjaweed that put down a rebellion against al-Bashir's government in Darfur. Both al-Bashir and the militia were charged with war crimes for their actions. On the other hand, the SAF, the Sudanese Armed Forces, are the official army of the nation of Sudan. Their own generals, the SAF's generals, had at some point provided training to the RSF. Now, both armed groups joined together in 2019 for the Sudanese Revolution, in which they worked together to overthrow Omar al-Bashir after his 30-year rule over the country. During the following four years, the RSF and SAF ruled the country together. But there was always a lingering tension between the two groups. Which one was really in charge? The SAF and other voices within the nation had wanted the RSF to be integrated into the official Sudanese army. But the leader of the RSF, Hemeti, was seeking to assert his legitimacy as the sole authority over Khartoum. And so these two factions who formerly worked together to overthrow al-Bashir have now turned on each other, which has led to the recent outbreak of violence. So the IOM, which is the International Organization for Migration and the Regional Office for Middle East and North Africa, was reporting at the time when I originally wrote this that an estimated 334,053 people, or about half the population of Wyoming, had been internally displaced due to the armed clashes between the SAF and RSF. Now, the number has grown since then to somewhere between 1.6 million to 2 million, depending on which sources you're looking at, 1.6 million being the more modest figure, but seems to be the number that's getting used the most. That many people internally displaced within Sudan. And of those people, an estimated 100,000 refugees fled to Sudan, many crossing into neighboring countries. Once again, that's an old stat. The number is now more like 530,000 people fleeing to other countries. Thousands of families have been heading to Egypt. Many others are headed towards Kenya or other neighboring African nations like Chad. 180,000 South Sudanese returnees, meaning South Sudanese people who are in Sudan and looking to go back home, are expected to return to South Sudan within the next three months. Most hauntingly, since April, 1,800 people have been killed in Sudan because of the conflict. Now, the Sudan International Non-Government Organization Forum, or INGO Forum, issued a joint statement from 59 organizations which called for the protection of civilians so that aid work could resume. This is going to become important in a second. The UNOCHA, United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, stated in a press release that their warehouses had been looted and that they were unable to bring in more supplies. The World Food Program, uh, their warehouses in El Obeid, I hope I'm saying that right, but their warehouses in one location were attacked and looted, and they contained food meant to serve around 4.4 million people. So you could understand why it's so important for some cease to the hostility and violence and fighting 
should happen. They need to stop shooting for at least some time to help the people that are just trying to get away from the violence. And of course, there are organizations within Sudan and outside of Sudan calling for that ceasefire. There were voices asking for that. And uh, like I said, that'll be important in a second. Global Affairs Canada, GAC, committed $71 million towards the response. Now, keep in mind, before the recent violence had broken out, nearly one-third of Sudan's population already required humanitarian assistance. You'll remember from previous episodes, ADRA was already active in Sudan doing projects related to water, sanitation and hygiene, gender equality, and education. We'll talk more about that in a second, but suffice it to say that there were already significant needs in Sudan before this violence broke out. And as with any emergency situation, these kinds of needs in these areas will only become more pronounced after the danger dies down. There's a quote from Dr. Arif Noor from Save the Children Sudan. A humanitarian catastrophe looms for children as the health system collapses. With only one functioning hospital for all of West Darfur, medical workers are pushed to the limit. It's quite the statement. But things have not developed in a positive direction. The international community, and as I mentioned, other organizations within Sudan, called for a ceasefire in order to move relief supplies through the country and to create time to aid people who are fleeing. This only makes sense, right? Say, please, if you have to shoot each other, please stop shooting for long enough for us to help people get supplies in to those who are not trying to be part of the fighting. The RSF and SAF eventually agreed to a five-day ceasefire on May 22nd of 2023, although that agreement was violated numerous times. After some additional pressure, both factions agreed on May 29th to extend that ceasefire, though they again continued to violate the truce. Commanders on both the RSF and SAF sides claimed that they were only responding to aggression from the other side, essentially both saying, well, they started it, he started it. The ceasefire was meant to also be an opportunity to negotiate some kind of resolution to this war. And yes, they have begun using the language of war to describe this conflict. Early on when I was doing my research for this, I was seeing conflict, armed conflict, armed conflict, things like that. Um, but now the word war is starting to turn up in the reporting, and that should be setting off some alarm bells for us. Now, the SAF general essentially accused the RSF of lacking commitment to the actual implementation of terms and agreements and of continuously violating the ceasefire. So there's a lot of finger pointing and, and blaming going on here. Out of the 25 million people now in need of aid, 13.6 million are children, with over 620,000 experiencing acute malnutrition. Local civilians and activists continue to be attacked, and entire neighborhoods and districts have been burned to the ground. In researching this, I saw videos where entire communities had every single house up in flames. It was honestly horrifying to watch. Another complicating factor is that while many of the average citizens in Sudan are fleeing for their lives, they are by no means taking this lying down. There are local militias, tribal fighters, and common everyday people who happen to have weapons and they've decided, I've had enough of this, and they've started to fight back against whoever happens to be causing them the most problems nearby. The regional governor of Darfur, Mini Minawi, who was formerly a rebel leader, urged citizens to arm themselves and defend their homes. The sentiment is completely understandable, but the violence is only being perpetuated and escalated, and the damage is, of course, increasing. Also, regular people are now putting themselves in harm's way by joining the fight. So it's pretty messy all around. 
There are also worries that this may escalate into tribal and ethnic tensions and conflict the more average citizens get involved. There are already dimensions of that at play here. There are already, um, for example, tensions between Arab and non-Arab Sudanese people involved in this conflict. So there's a lot going on here. And any escalation at this point is a bad sign. And local authorities and people keeping their eyes on this are worried that the fighting may spread from Sudan into further regions in the area, even into other countries. So the situation is dire and it is, honestly, it's just a a whirlwind of things to keep track of right now. And the, the humanitarian toll that this is taking cannot be underestimated, I think. So, when this violence erupted in Sudan, local Adra Sudan employees were among the numerous people fleeing and seeking shelter. If you are asking, if you're wondering, if you're among the people who want to know what is Adra doing, here's your answer. Adra Sudan has their own employees, as we often say on this podcast and in our promotional material for Adra in general. We are a network of over 120, I think maybe even over 130 offices in countries all around the world. And that means that something like Adra Sudan hires locally. There are people already there who are part of Adra who actually implement our projects. Now, this is a benefit, but when something like this happens, when something like armed conflict or war happens in an area, it also means that the Adra responders are often caught in the midst of the disaster, in this case, caught in the crossfire. Um, If you remember back to our episode with Maddie, we talked about some of our WASH, water sanitation and hygiene, projects in Sudan. But when bullets start flying and things are on fire or exploding, it's not exactly right for ADRA to say to its employees, make sure you come to the office today. We just don't do that, right? While ADRA workers are trained to respond to emergencies and provide life-saving support, they are not soldiers, they are not necessarily paramedics, they are not emergency responders, and they can't be expected to work in an active war zone that is a threat to their own lives. So we at ADRA Canada were very happy to know that our staff, our peers in Sudan, were able to flee and hide and find safety, and that ultimately none of them, as far as we know, have been hurt. The week of May 8 through 12, a team from Adra Sudan attended the UN coordination meetings in the Upper Nile state capital of Malakal. There's a bunch of place names coming up. I'm just warning you now, my pronunciation is not localized at all. I apologize. They conducted needs assessments simultaneously in Malakal, Oolong, Nasir, Longichuk, and Maiwut, mostly areas where Adra is already present and working on various projects. Multiple humanitarian agencies have put together an interagency response plan. ADRA South Sudan has been active as part of that interagency plan. Part of the benefit of approaching things this way is that it prevents redundancies between agencies and it fills in gaps where there happen to be gaps. So one thing to keep in mind, dear listener, dear donor, is that sometimes you will hear about the work that ADRA is doing in an emergency situation. And it may sound in some ways small, for lack of a better word. It may seem a little insignificant or maybe underwhelming, of course, depending greatly on your perspective and you know, subjective understanding of what counts as big or small. 
But when it comes to a major emergency situation, one of the things ADRA does is work in conjunction with other agencies and organizations. The parts of a plan that ADRA is handling may just be one specific focused element of a much larger strategy carried out by a huge network of volunteers, workers, donors, and others who are not necessarily part of ADRA but are working on the same action plan. And that's the benefit. That's how a little bit that is given goes a long, long, long way. The different humanitarian agencies aren't all attempting to do variations on the same thing. We coordinate with each other, and that's what really makes a difference. So at present, the interagency plan involves four key strategic objectives. One, provide life-saving assistance at the border to people who are fleeing from Sudan. Two, guarantee protection to refugees and asylum seekers. We're looking at about 60,000 refugees in six months. Three, assist the most vulnerable South Sudanese returnees to return to their destination. And four, support third country nationals. Um, if you're not familiar with that term, a third country national is a migrant in a country that is not their place of origin. So someone who is traveling in a place that they're not from, who is now applying for a visa to get into another country that is also not where they're from. Right, So uh, uh, an expat who's trying to become even more an expat somewhere else, essentially. Authorities in South Sudan have identified 12 crucial entry points along their border with Sudan. In these locations, humanitarian organizations set up transit facilities to help people along their journey. At the border sites, agents are collecting and managing population data, performing needs-based triage of arrivals, setting up rest facilities, emergency medical services, providing food, water, sanitation, and hygiene services, and helping refugees, returnees, and third country nationals to connect with transportation when necessary. The transit facilities being set up by humanitarian organizations serve multiple purposes. They provide travelers with food, shelter, water, and hygiene resources, and more detailed specialized care based on specific needs of different groups. Families at these transit centers receive a package containing two sleeping mats per family, two blankets, one jerry can for water, two mosquito nets, one bar of soap, hygiene-related non-food items, and dignity kits for managing menstruation for ages 12 to 50. One of the key areas of concern for internally displaced people is water, sanitation, and hygiene. When you have tons of people moving around and inhabiting new places, often together in large groups, it's easy for wash resources to be used up or strained or damaged or even contaminated. And so one of our major goals in places like Madani State, for example, is to provide solar power for the pumping systems that supply local neighborhoods with water. Keeping those pump systems powered is crucial to maintaining hygiene for people who are internally displaced and for the communities who are hosting those displaced people. Our response plan also includes supplying larger water storage tanks, as well as repairing and rehabilitating 60 different communal latrines. In many ways, these interventions are quite similar to the kinds of things ADRA did in Syria with the earthquake earlier this year, right? We had people in Syria entering these community centers or these temporary shelters, these communal shelters, and many of these are damaged school buildings or community centers where you know the toilets end up getting overused or the plumbing breaks down or there's no power to pump the water through these places. And so getting water resources and getting the infrastructure working again or modifying the infrastructure to support that many people is a huge part of keeping people healthy and sanitary and taken care of while they are traveling, while they are internally displaced. 
So whether it be the outbreak of violence or an earthquake, people end up needing similar kinds of basic things when they become displaced. It's the simple but essential things that really make the difference in maintaining some kind of quality of life when everything gets disrupted. Now, the unfortunate reality is that because the violence has continued, because the SAF and RSF continue to violate the ceasefire, there are certain areas where aid has become difficult. Like I mentioned before, one of the World Food Program warehouses got attacked and looted, and that disrupted food that was meant for about 4.4 million people. Like That's just a staggering thing to think of. And the more violence erupts in certain areas, the more it is difficult and dangerous for humanitarian workers to get into those areas to help people evacuate or to provide food and other resources as needed. So it's really difficult in some areas. In the Blue Nile and White Nile areas where ADRA was already present doing projects, things are relatively calm. And so in those areas where things are not being too badly disrupted, our work continues and we are meeting the needs of people as they travel through and assessing the situations as they go. The work continues, the projects continue because it's safe, right? We're not putting our frontline workers in harm's way by continuing those projects in those areas. The fact that the violence is ongoing makes things a little bit complicated when it comes to our response. So for example, Adra Sudan had planned to send the emergency response coordinator since May 23 to Port Sudan, which is kind of the only entry point that's available right now, uh, and to join the support team on the ground in White Nile, Blue Nile, and Gazira states. This has not been possible because of delays in the process of issuing visas by the government and embassies. Besides those of Adra Sudan, visa requests from over 100 other INGOs, that's international non-government organizations, are still pending, of which over 55 are in the Sudanese embassy in Nairobi, despite the high-level advocacy on this issue. So basically what this means is things have gotten so gummed up on the more bureaucratic side of things, on the paperwork side of things, that some people who are supposed to be sent to help in the response coordination have not been able to arrive. So address activities are currently continuing in the White Nile state and the Blue Nile state where security stuff, you know, the security situation is relatively calm. Things are pretty much at ease and the field is accessible so they can continue doing what they do. In addition, ADRA has commenced emergency response activities in Gazira State, where they've already expanded their response to the most urgent wash needs and have completed needs assessments. So there's a lot of work that is continuing, and much of what we're doing in Sudan now is a continuation of the projects that we were already doing in that country before this whole thing broke out. The reality is that the kinds of things that people need, the basic needs that ADRA already works on, food, water, shelter, education, advocacy for gender rights, those kinds of things, those issues just become worse in a conflict situation like this. So we have to continue responding to those things with an understanding that the situation is just much more intense, much more drastic now. In contrast to what's going on in White Nile and Blue Nile, where Adra's activities can continue because it's safe, the situation in West Darfur and Khartoum are completely unsafe and Adra activities there are still suspended. We're not able to respond. The area is frankly not even accessible to our workers. 
There are cities that have been demolished to the ground, and including most social services. So ADRA is working closely with the rest of the organizations in the area to find a safer humanitarian corridor to serve the affected people in both Khartoum and West Darfur state. The INGO Forum is continuing to work with local authorities to try to find a way to create a space, an area, a corridor where humanitarian work can take place. One of the possibilities being considered is the Chad border, the Chad side of the border with West Darfur state. Meanwhile, ADRA is organizing to conduct a needs assessment together with ADRA Chad for the Sudanese IDPs along the border in Chad. So even in the areas where our work is not able to directly take place or continue, we're anticipating what we can do and getting ready for the chance where, you know, the opportunity opens up. So this is one of the reasons why it's important for us to receive donations and support um, because even if we're not able to respond right away, for example, in a situation like this where it's not safe for ADRA workers to enter the area, we can plan towards the moment when that becomes a possibility so that they can hit the ground running with an actionable plan and resources that they can actually account for when the opportunity comes, right? So again, this is the complicated, difficult situation that they're in, but the level of coordination and cooperation that's taking place demonstrates the power of working in a network, both within ADRA and within the broader circle of humanitarian organizations. I know that's a lot to digest. I know this has been a lot to take in, but this is the only way we can take an honest look at what's happening there. And this is a significant event. It merits the kind of deep dive that it takes to understand what's happening, right? Um, it's suffice it to say that African issues often do get overlooked in the West and maybe not reported on with the same level of intensity and detail that it really does require to understand what's happening. And I think it's important for us to all give that kind of attention to every part of the world equally and fairly. Those who know ADRA well have seen over and over again that emergency response is one of our specialties. We have responded to emergencies all over the world and continue to be effective in responding to urgent needs through the strength and interconnection of the ADRA network and the larger Seventh-day Adventist Church. But there will always be unexpected situations or circumstances that take us by surprise, and there is usually some amount of waiting and uncertainty as the early stages of an emergency unfold. Transitional moments, we call them, like the emergent stages of a crisis, or even the wrap-up stage of a project, often come with a lot of uncertainty. Address supporters who provide our funding allow us to be prepared for these transitional moments and to respond as thoroughly as we can, even when the way forward is not clear. Whether you are a regular donor or just an interested observer, we thank you for being among those who have invested in the mission of ADRA. That's all for this look at how ADRA creates a just world by responding to emergencies. 
our podcast journey through the Year of Justice theme will continue next month. But until then, I'm your host, Teresa Ferreira. And as always, our mission at ADRA is to serve humanity so all may live as God intended. Blessings, and I look forward to talking to you all next time.